Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, I had an opportunity to talk with Stephen Moore, the Executive Director of the Nova Scotia Forestry Association. Um, it follows, uh, you know, a conference that you and I attended uh, recently uh, in New Glasgow uh, called Partners for Progress or Growth, Partners for Growth, uh, which was conducted by the um, Regional Enterprise Networks of Nova Scotia. And one of the things that we discussed at that conference, as you know, are things like forestry and mining that is sometimes overlooked when you talk about economic development. It's interesting that, you know, when we talk about mining, we've already said that we've, we, we have to increase mining uh, significantly, especially for critical min minerals, if we're to achieve the uh, net 50, uh, net, net 20, 2050 um, um, climate goals. Well, you know what? The same thing is true now for forestry, because if we wanna triple the number of houses being built in this region, guess what? We need more lumber. <laughs> so even though the forestry industry continues to be important in this region, it's got to be, it's got to become a lot more important. Yeah, I think that's right. If you look at the GDP contribution from the forest product sector in Nova Scotia, it's down 25% since its peak in the mid-2000s. Uh, <clears throat> mid the big decline, of course, because of the closure of the big mill is the paper sector, which is down 38%. I think Nova Scotia has to figure out what uh, what it needs to do, and I think your interview ha has shine a, shone a light on a number of opportunities to keep that sector continuing to be a, a major economic engine in Nova Scotia. But I think it, you're right tying it to mining because it is very much part of this ongoing discussion we're having around natural resources development in general. To people that like the forest products industry, they see it no different than agriculture. It's just the, the the cycles are longer, right? But you you Correct. you have trees, you harvest those trees in an appropriate way. You plant, you grow, and then forty years later you harvest again, uh, and it provides an ongoing source of renewable economic activity in the province. That, you know that's exactly right. And and by the way, you know people worry about about cutting too many trees and 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 running out of trees. Uh, you know, Stevens, I asked them the question about how many trees do we had in, in the province of Nova Scotia. 600 million, pretty big number. And we currently harvest about 2.5 million. So, you know, we're not, we're not using a lot of the resource on an annual basis, of course, has time to regrow. Um, but it's still an important industry, just to uh, emphasize that $1.8 billion in economic uh, impact and uh, 6,000 jobs. So it's still consequential, but it's in the transition phase. And it's certainly the closure of Northern Pulp has been a, a has hurt uh, significantly. It's reduced the number of buyers. It's created a, a gap in low-grade uh, fiber for the market, 1.5 million tons that uh, is looking for a purpose. And there are purposes, of course, uh, that are coming along. Um, uh, Nova Scotia has, uh, behind uh, traditional lumber, it has opportunities in structural mass timber. We've done a podcast on that. Uh, pressed wood pallets and, and, and pellets. And so, uh, they, you know, some of those products could be used as heating sources, especially for district heating. And I, and I think uh, Nova Scotia Power is looking at that already. So, you know, we have to find new markets for what we currently have. And we have to, I think, develop a strategy to, uh, you know, take advantage of, of the resource that we have in this region generally, because as, a, as we mentioned, uh, the housing demand is going to go through the uh, ceiling and uh, we're going to run out of uh, supply if we don't start planning for that now. Yeah, and I know you talked with him about uh, managed forests and this idea of yeah. making sure you're clearing them and the old biomass, the, de the dead and, and dying biomass, because I think that's a real fire hazard and we're seeing after the hurricane, a lot of trees down in across Nova Scotia, particularly in certain areas. And that becomes a, a source of biomass. It can be uh, converted into things like pellets and, and other uses, but it's also a risk for future fires. So I, I, I'm glad you guys touched on that. Yeah, we talked about conservation. Nova Scotia has a you know very aggressive uh, plan through the LaHaye uh, report to conserve 30% of available land. And, I, and by that, I think they mean crown land. Um, uh, but the, one of the problems that uh, Stephen point out is that, pointed out is that if you don't manage your forest on a regular basis, they become fire hazards. 
And uh, of course, we, we, we saw that this past summer. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of land that, that, that needs to be cleaned up. Otherwise, it's going to pose risk uh, going forward. So there's the forest management aspect uh, that has to be uh, taken into account when we talk about conservation, number one. Number two, uh, one of the problems that Nova Scotia currently has is that, you know, if they want to conserve 30% of uh, forest, they need to include private land in, in counting that number. Otherwise, you're taking a lot of production out of, uh, out of service un, un, unnecessarily. So it's, that's one of the challenges that the, the, you know, the forest industry has in Nova Scotia. So, you know, all told, you know, here's, the, here's an industry that, uh, that, that we need to focus on. We can't forget forestry in this region. It's important. And we tend to go with a shiny object approach to economic development, as you know. Uh, but, you know, um, the basic uh, resources that we have in this region need to be properly managed, obviously, and we have to take advantage of the opportunities that they offer uh, to create uh, jobs and economic, economic activity. Well, we're taking it seriously here on the Insights Podcast. By my count, we've done seven or eight interviews related to the forestry sector since we started this podcast. So we're taking it seriously, Don. Yeah, we are. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we have a couple others that are coming along. So we're going to continue to uh, shine a light on this opportunity, uh, even though others may not. Uh, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, because uh, uh, I'd heard this and, and I asked Stephen about it, is that, <clears throat> you know, Northern Pulp obviously are challenged about reopening their plant in Pictou. It's not likely to happen. Uh, but they've expressed interest in, in, in a, a new plant in Nova Scotia. So they still see Nova Scotia as an opportunity. And we should, we should not ignore that, uh, that interest, I don't think, uh, because we could certainly use another, uh, another um, pulp and paper mill in this, uh, in this province uh, to help the industry. So people may not like to hear that, but uh, the reality is, is that opportunity uh, exists and we should take advantage of that. So with that uh, introduction, here's my conversation with Stephen. We're pleased to be joined on this edition of the Insights Podcast by Stephen Moore, the Executive Director of Forest Nova Scotia. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'd like to begin by finding out more about your personal background. Can you tell us about your career path to your current role uh, with Forest Nova Scotia? Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the things that um, kind of makes me a bit different in this role is that I'm a, I'm a longtime political staffer in Politico, not more, not, not so much a forestry professional, but um, stepping into this role, uh, what, what was clear is that the sector really wanted to have a stronger public presence, a stronger public voice and discussions and debate and, and uh, someone who knew how to really work in and around government and work in and around policy and regulation. And so, um, you know, my background came, I started in 2010 in politics. I worked with uh, Premier McNeil uh, when he was opposition leader. Uh, worked my way up through with him and my last few years with uh, McNeil's office for director of communications when he was premier. Um, after that, I did some work for uh, MQO uh, Research uh, here in Halifax and uh, spent some time working at St. Mary's, helping them develop their government relations functions and capabilities internally. And, and then I landed over at Forest Nova Scotia. So it's been uh, a long time in and around politics in Nova Scotia and, uh, and federally as well. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the Forest Nova Scotia and, and, and who are your members? Absolutely. So Forest Nova Scotia is uh, the largest forestry membership based organization in Nova Scotia. We have over 700 members. Um, what a lot of people don't realize about us is that um, we have of the 700 members, uh, over 95% of them are small private woodlot owners. And if you look at our membership, we actually, I would say, have the largest cross-section of the forestry sector of any forestry organization. We have the pulp, you know, we have the paper mill down in, in Port Hawkesbury. We have sawmills. Uh, we have bioeconomy organizations. Uh, we have contractors, Christmas tree look, you know, uh, growers. So our, our membership is quite diverse in that way. And, and we are the really the easiest way to get the, the broadest cross-section of, uh, of the forestry sector in Nova Scotia. And it's very good that our membership is also growing, you know, and it's it, so it's good to be able to be in a position with a with an organization where the membership is growing, where there's that kind of momentum, because when you are an advocacy organization, uh, having that growth, having that momentum is, is important. It helps you bring a stronger voice forward in the public and it helps you bring a stronger voice forward to government. Yeah. So uh, tell us about the types of 
programming and services you provide your members? Absolutely. So there, there's a broad range of services. You know, we do administer a road program on behalf of the province. What what some people don't realize is that, uh, well, I'm sure everybody realizes our gas is taxed, but uh, the, you know, when you operate on private roads, uh, you're not benefiting from the maintenance that comes from those tax dollars. So many years ago, there was a program put in place that would see a portion of the gas tax revenue provided to private roads that were used for forestry purposes. We oversee and administer that program. Uh, over the last year, we've also helped with programs in and around Fiona cleanup, uh, helping administer those programs on behalf of the province. But we also offer many things to members. Uh, we offer woodlot owners uh, services to help navigate you know, when it comes time to find a contractor, when it comes time to sell their resource, we're able to help our landowners with those types of needs. We offer training and professional upgrading opportunities, lots of education uh, opportunities. and. But uh, and we have all of those things, but I would say that the thing that is we do is that singularly most important is we really try to operate as the voice of uh, the sector in Nova Scotia. Mm. We are the largest forestry organization. We have the largest cross-section of the sector in Nova Scotia. And so as much as we provide services to our members, we're also here to advocate. And we are advocates on behalf of forestry families. Uh, you know, and so over the last year, we've been able to work with government to pursue some pro policies, approaches, build up new relationships. And, and we believe we're, we're really helping you know, uh, bring the sector into the center of discussions and around whether it's economic development or how we respond to climate change. You know, the forestry sector is often forgotten. I think when you think when people talk about the economy, I recently uh, wrote a column on on the impact and the importance of the forestry industry. In Nova Scotia, the industry's had a couple of uh, major blows in the last decade, in particular the closure of uh, Bowater Mill in Munnerberg County, and of course Northern Pulp in Pictou uh, County. Those uh, those have hurt the industry. Perhaps you can tell our industry our listeners about the current state of the forestry sector in Nova Scotia especially in terms of its contribution to the G GDP of the province, as well as perhaps uh, the number of direct and indirect jobs connected to the sector. Sure. So uh, I, I can't really give it as a percentage of provincial GDP. It's that's uh, we're just revising some numbers that'll help us do that. But we do have over 6000 people in employed in and around forestry in Nova Scotia. And what we know is that many of those jobs and many of those employment opportunities are happening in rural areas. Uh, and so to have a, a resource based sector that's operating and producing that type of, of benefit uh, in rural communities is hugely important. Uh, the closure of Northern Pulp was was very problematic for the sector. Uh, you know, and, and it hit certain parts of the sector harder than others. If you go back five years, uh, we've seen the number of buyers of primary forest products decline in Nova Scotia by about 20%. Um, we've seen the number of the, the contracting capacities or ability to harvest and service the woods decline by about 40%. Uh, and those are both substantial declines and, and very serious challenges for, for the province in Nova Scotia. But the other thing that people don't realize about Northern Pulp, and many people don't, is that they were buying what's called low-grade fiber or wastewood, right? So when a mill creates lumber, there's always leftover portions of that. Uh, that is what Northern Pulp would be able to access or use. Uh, wastewood down from for instance, natural disturbances such as hurricanes. That is also something, depending on the type of wood and the quality, is something that that organization could have produced. And so they would have been, you know, there's a gap uh, following the closure of Northern, about 1.5 million tons of low-grade fiber, where we need new markets for that. And so it's not just Northern's impact on the contractor base or the number of buyers, but it really sends reverberations throughout the sector and changes the economics of many of the other products you create. You know, it, it'd be, you know, the way I often describe it, it's like telling a farmer that, you know, he can shell, sell chicken breasts, but he can't sell chicken thighs. And that would upset the economics of their, their operation and their business model. And much of the same goes for forestry with Northern's closure. Uh, so, you know, right now there was a period of time through COVID where, of course, lumber prices took off and that certainly was helpful and, and helped delay uh, some of the negative consequences of the northern shutdown. But uh, what we are seeing now is that, you know, there there are certainly challenges facing the sector with uh, with lumber prices coming back to, uh, you know, pre-COVID levels. But but certainly, you know, I, I don't want to make it all doom and gloom because it is a sector that has tremendous opportunity and tremendous potential as well. Uh, Nova Scotia's forest sector is, uh, is, is taking more carbon out of the environment than we emit. So we are a net carbon sink in Nova Scotia. Um, and so, and research shows that we'll be able to continually increase our harvest levels 
while still be able to maintain that status. And much of that is around the tree planting activities we do, the land management activities, and the products we produce, right? When a tree is growing, it's absorbing carbon, locking it away. When that tree is harvested and turned into lumber, the, the carbon stays locked away and stored in the lumber. It stays locked away and stored in the other products we're creating. So the whole nature of our sector is one where I think we are posed, poised, pardon me, for green growth. And, and given some of the new technologies that are, that are being looked at, given some of the innovations in around wood-based products that you've already talked to people about you know we're seeing real potential for growth in nova scotia and that is exciting because forestry has had a tough go uh for for quite a while yeah so uh what are the main forestry products currently in nova scotia so there are a lot of forestry products produced, but, you know, the main products that we're producing in Nova Scotia would be, you know, lumber for construction, uh, wood pellets for home and heating, biomass for electricity, uh, paper down at Port Hawkesbury. Uh, we'll be doing high-end siding, moldings, hardwood lumber, you know, pallet wood. Uh, so those types of things are, are sort of the main products right now. But certainly um, what is becoming clear is that forestry can be connected to a variety of new technologies, a variety of new industries, and can really help drive green growth in the province and globally. Yeah, yeah you mentioned that there's 1.5 uh, million tons of, uh, of low-grade fiber that is looking for a market. Uh, do you see that market being bio, uh, bio products? Uh, I'll be really honest with you. I'm agnostic as to what the market is, so long as we have a lot of people competing to buy it. Hmm. And I think that's part of the big thing that we need to look at. I don't think as a sector, we need to be looking at a singular silver bullet. Um, that really makes you exposed to global forces that are largely beyond Nova Scotia's control. What I think we need to do is, is to look at, yes, bioeconomy is one. We would love to have another pulp mill here. Uh, we would love to see district heating that uses biomass. I want as many companies competing for this low-grade fiber as possible because that's how you drive up the value of the resource. That's how you drive up a value of a resource without needing too much government involvement, too much government subsidy. And so I think that as we look at what we need as a sector, yes, bioeconomy plays are one, district heating, absolutely. Another pulp mill would be spectacular. But the big thing is, is having people competing for that surplus. Um, and the other thing that as well is that that is the surplus left by Northern Pulp's closure. The practice of ecological forestry in Nova Scotia, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, really also it shows there's potential to increase the, the amount of low-grade fiber available. And so I see an opportunity where we can really leverage that, uh, turn that into an opportunity for other people looking to come here. And I think the other thing that'll be helping with it, uh, to be honest with you, Don, is that the, recently the federal government said biomass projects are eligible for the clean electricity uh, tax credits federally, and that mm. covers 30% of the project's cost. Okay. So if we can look at people and say there's a surplus of the material you need, plus there's going to be a substantial tax credit if you come here and invest. That's a very compelling offer that, that Nova Scotia is very well positioned to, to capitalize, especially when you consider our ports and our connections to international markets from an infrastructure perspective. Right. You know, I, uh, over my career, I, I, I did a lot of work in the forestry industry for some of the bigger players. Um, and I was always advocating for more public uh, education because the, the public really doesn't understand the dynamics of the forestry sector. Your association, uh, I was really interested in this, recently conducted a public awareness campaign on behalf of your members. Uh, tell us about the primary purpose of that campaign. The, the purpose of that campaign is largely to let the public know how we're functioning and to combat a lot of the common myths about forestry. Uh, you know, I, I, I view it as a really important element and a function of what we do. Uh, so we had an opportunity, uh, the campaign was called Our Trees, and we'll be running it again next year as well. Uh, and what we encouraged Nova Scotians to do was to sign up, receive a free seedling, plant a seedling in your yard, come out to the pickup locations, engage with people who work in the sector at these locations, and then go plant the tree with your kids or your grandkids or your partner, whoever it happens to be. You know, much of what we've discovered is that people are very supportive of forestry and that the loud voices really are not representative of the actual views of the province. Mm. And so what we're trying to do is ensure that decision makers and policymakers understand that dynamic because we need policymakers to know that they have the support to do things they need to do to support our sector. 
And that is an incredibly important thing from a politician. Asking a politician to do something unpopular is sometimes necessary, but it's not something you want to do frequently. And so when you can show them their support, when you can grow a base of support, and when you can tell compelling stories, it's really effective. You know, Peter Spicer was um, our first spokesperson. We ran three different ads on television, on digital everywhere you could go in the province. Uh, Peter is the seventh generation owner of a woodlot uh, in northern Nova Scotia. He wants, He's preparing his next generation and his family to take over the woodlot. And the point that I frequently make is that if you're someone who wants to continue making a sustainable living off the land, if you want whoever comes after you to be able to make a living off the land, it makes no sense to exploit the land. In fact, you're going to care for the land in a way that most people will never be familiar with. And so that's why that's been the point of the campaign and will likely continue to be the point of the campaign as we continue with it. Yeah, yeah that's a really excellent point. Um, uh, I know uh, I've, I've done some work with uh, JDI over the years. <clears throat> they have a they have kind of a hundred year view of the future of their forest. Hundred years, you know. Obviously, absolutely. We're the old. We, we're the absolute long term industry. Yeah, there's no. There's, it has to. It has to be. <laughs> and again, to your point, I think the public doesn't understand that that. It, in issues like sustainability, that's the number one priority for anybody who's working in the forest industry because they want to maintain their their livelihood. Anyway, absolutely. You know, and I, there are a lot of misconceptions. The number of people that you know, we did a lot of pickup locations at farmers markets around Nova Scotia. I think we did thirty to forty locations in a month, and and I had a number of people come up and said, "We harvest twenty percent of the forest every year." To which I have to gently point back that if I'm harvest, if we're harvesting 20% every year in five years, there's no forests. But <laughs> it, it's it, it's a real opportunity to engage in some of that myth busting. In actuality, we harvest less than one percent of forestable land in in Nova Scotia every year. Right. Uh, science and, and 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 the government has said six million tons can be harvested sustainably every year. We're only harvesting 2.5 million tons, so we're well below what is sustainable to do. And that's actually not a good thing for a lot of reasons. Uh, but, you know, that's why we're focused on telling the story because we want to be able to have forestry professionals get out, do what they do, and also be proud of what they do for a living because all of the controversy in and around forestry for a very long time made it very hard for people in our sector to feel proud about what they were doing. And that's a very unfortunate thing when you have to wake up every day when you work hard every day when you actually care about the land but you can't go to work feeling proud about what you do and we want to make sure that changes on behalf of our members so the public's two biggest concerns about the forestry sector have generally been about the sustainability of the uh, forest in terms of the number of trees being harvested and clear cutting and clear cutting as a uh, the second one as a harvesting practice let's let's just deal with some big picture questions. Uh, what percentage sure. of Nova Scotia is covered with trees? Do you know that number? The percentage of Nova Scotia covered with trees? So 75% of the province is currently forested, covered <laughs> covered by trees. Yeah. So um, that's a lot of trees, obviously. What percentage of the forests available, both privately and on public lands, are harvested in a typical year? I know you said 1%, but, but uh, of the total, what would that number be? Yeah. Um, so it's 1% of harvestable land that's worked. So that'd be 1% of that 75% number that I mentioned to you prior. That's a lot of math. So my yeah. apologies for yeah. that. But one, one of the things that it's also important to point out about Nova Scotia is actually the, the way that land is owned in our province is actually very different from the majority of provinces. Right. So in Nova Scotia, basically two thirds of land uh, is privately owned. And one third is publicly owned crown land. Okay. In most places, that's actually inverted, um, which which creates other dynamics for our sector. But that you know, uh, so what I would say is of, of the land that's forested for, that we can work, one percent of it is harvested on an, less than one percent is harvested on an annual basis. Uh, so I know the math. So the math is 075 <laughs> percent of all the forested land in Nova Scotia is <laughs> harvested yes. here. Basically, means that it would take more than a hundred years. If you didn't do any replanting to wipe out the forest. In yeah. the and that's, right? you know, to the, to the point of replanting, that's an important point. And it was one of the things the campaign we ran also looked at, which is that every year forestry professionals in Nova Scotia plant 12 million trees. Okay. And then we have studies that show upwards of 8 million trees are also regrown naturally on the land we manage. So that means as much as 20 million trees are grown every year because of the forestry sector. That is a very, very important point uh, to make. And, and especially when you consider how small of a mass of land we're actually working collectively every year. Yeah. 
you might not uh, be able to answer this question specifically because it depends on the kinds of trees, but generally speaking, how long does it take to regrow the trees that are currently being harvested? Yeah, so again, as you said, it does depend on the species. Harvesting normally occurs around every 40 to 60 years. Hmm. Um, there are times where, you know, there's what's called partial harvesting is, is done. That could be if you're doing selective cutting, uh, if you're going into a particular portion of a tree stand or a forest where there's different age trees. Hmm. And so in those instances, harvesting can happen every 15 to 20 years. So again, it does also depend on the species. Some are going to grow crap faster than others. Some are more short-lived than others. Um, but, you know, it, the forests currently grow about 11 million tons of, well, let's say, wood every year. Um, and, and we're only harvesting 2.5 million tons of that a year in terms of the actual volume of, of work that, that's happening. Okay. That's a, that's a pretty interesting statistic uh, uh, for sure. Um, so... Um, the, the province has designated certain areas where there can be no harvesting of trees. We're going to get into the Hay report shortly, but what portion of the province is subject to this ban on harvesting currently? Sure. So uh, the province right now, and, and that's, again, it's a question of crown versus private. Sure. Um, so the, the province is pushing to protect 20% of crown land right now. Uh, and that is that is a target that they publicly stated they're currently undergoing consultations. But when we talk about protected land, one of the things that gets missed a lot is that there is a tremendous amount of private land that cannot be forested for regulatory or legislative reasons. And so if you look at the private, the crown land that's currently protected and the private land that cannot be forested, we're actually closing in on upwards of 40% of the land mass in Nova Scotia that can't be worked. Um, you know, and so on private land masses, those would be zones around streams and watercourses, uh, moose shelter patches, deer wintering areas, other wetlands. So these are all things that have very strict restrictions against harvesting and working, but aren't counted towards the official uh, protected area targets. And, and this is why uh, when the province called for submissions uh, as part of their consultations to protected areas, we said we need to start looking at ways to count these areas. And, you know, the idea that we have is to go out to people who own private land and offer what are called voluntary conservation easements, which is an agreement that that landowner takes that passes on with the ownership of that piece of land that this area cannot be worked, which is beneficial for a number of reasons. Um, because as we said, as much as 40% of land of Nova Scotia is already protected. But if you're not careful about protecting land, that means several things that are problematic. First off, it means, I mean, first off, trees die. It's inevitable. When trees die, the carbon that's locked away in the tree gets emitted back into the atmosphere as opposed to getting locked away in lumber or some other product. So it's going to hasten climate change. Absolutely, it does. Um, as trees age, they're going to fall over. They're going to hit the ground. Uh, they're going to be hit by hurricanes and other natural disturbances that are going to result in them being on the ground and that being left there to dry out. And as those trees dry out, that becomes forest fire fuel. And that is, as we've seen this last year, a very serious problem. If you look at the places that were hit by wildfires this summer, you're going to find a tremendous amount of overlap with areas that were not worked, were not forested, were not managed, weren't thinned. And so when you protect an area, that means you can't even go in and thin the area. And that is yet again, a, a very serious challenge of promise. And another challenge too is that, you know, as these forests age, as trees fall over, as they're left to decay, it does invite invasive species as well. And so if you're not careful about how we're protecting land and how much land we're protecting, it makes the risk of climate change worse. It makes the risk of wildfires worse. And it, it also introduced potentially new invasive species into the environment, which is not good for the biodiversity of the area as well. And, you know, oftentimes people will bring up the point of biodiversity, to which I have to say what's really bad for wildlife are massive record-breaking wildfires. You know, and there's no new research coming out that says it takes wildlife longer to recover from wildfires than previously thought. And this, you know, the same article said the best way to avoid these massive wildfires is to allow for proper forest management, even if it's just going in and thinning the forests to, to get the dead, dying, decaying stuff out. But this also connects back to the conversation we had about places like Northern, in that in order to have a properly functioning forest, you need a properly functioning, healthy forest economy. Because what happens is right now there are no economic incentives to go into the woods and bring that stuff out. So even if you were allowed to do the thinning, there's no buyer for that product once you get it out of the forest. 
And so what that means is taxpayers are left on the hook for millions of dollars to go in and do the cleanup because there's no there's no market mechanism to allow for that to happen. And so when we get into this question about low grade fiber, pulp, other users of this material, it's important to remember that without that economic incentive, without that customer, there's no real reason for people to go in to get it unless the government and taxpayers are going to have to take money from other services and go spend money to do it. And so when we get into these protected area conversations, these are a lot of the things that get left out. And one of the things that I also frequently see when we start talking about protected areas is when people will talk about, well, there's this lovely stand of trees, there's this beautiful part of forest. If you go back 20 to 30 years, you will find someone like Bowater was probably working and managing the land, spraying herbicide, planting and thinning, which is why it looks so beautiful and is so easy to traverse right now. And so really you get into this world where without that forest economy functioning, Without a healthy forest economy, you have less resilient forests that are more at risk of wildfires and other natural disturbances. Yeah, I think that that's a, a point that most people do not understand, and I'm glad that you brought it up. The LaHaye report made a number of recommendations regarding the sustainability of the forest in the, in the province and the practice of clear cutting and called for what is known as ecological forestry. Can you define eco ecological forestry for our <laughs> listeners, please? Um, I don't know. I, I would say there's probably 30 to 40,000 different definitions of ecological forestry. But for the sake of the Leahy report, yeah. uh, I think it's, it's kind of easiest to almost to explain it in function. And what Leahy did is he looked at crown land and said, we want to divide crown land into three areas. Hmm. They call it the triad approach. Right. So one is the area for conservation. The other is, uh, is an area called matrix zones. And in a matrix zones, that's where you can go in heavy foresting, heavy, uh, pardon me, heavy forestry activity can't take place, but you can go in, you can thin, you can manage, you can clean out dead trees, that sort of thing. And then 10% of crown land, uh, and they use a very industrial term, which makes no sense to me, but they say 10% is allotted for high production forestry. But what that is, is that's tree farming. And so 10% of crown land in Leahy is, is, allot is allotted for people to basically go and treat crown land as area to, to farm trees that we turn into lumber and other products that we need. And what's important to realize about the Leahy report is that it's a really delicate balance in that nobody who came into this thing got everything they wanted. Everybody compromised to get to this sort of area of consensus. But if one area or the other gets more focused than the report recommended, the environmental sustainability and the economic sustainability of the sector is upended, which is why we, we need to make sure that this report is being implemented, not piecemeal, not selectively, not too slowly, but it needs to be done efficiently, quickly, and, and as the report lays out. And that's a really important point as well. Yeah. So um, you talked about the triad model. You know, I think I... I didn't realize that only a third of the forests were uh, crown lands. So I think that that's a, it's a, you know, it's obviously a little less impactful because of the size of the crown lands in the in the province. But uh, what impact? And also, and not not to cut you off, but it's again, I think another reason as to why we need to look at engaging private landowners in this conservation question with these voluntary conservation easements, right? And they, you you can't be walking in and and you know, riding roughshod over private landowner rights. But I know for a fact that people in our sectors, whoever discussed, they care about the woods. If there's a portion of their woodlot that they can make available for conservation purposes, they're going to do it. If they can put land that they can't work towards conservation targets, they're going to do it. And so given that, you know, the two thirds to one third split here, mm -hmm. it is incredibly important when we have these protected areas discussions that we also look at making sure we're engaging private landowners. So I, I want to just ask you, what impact has the report had generally on forest management practices to date in Nova Scotia? What I would say is we're, we're kind of in a position where we have to say we have, we're not sure. We have to wait and see. Um, the, as I said, the, the, the piece of, of those three zones, the tree farming areas, as they call them, high production forestry, uh, those, those are the areas that really make the economics of forestry make sense. But that has been the last piece of the puzzle they've been implementing. And they initially launched it slowly. Uh, the rollout was slow. They've sped up the rollout a bit, but it's still taking far too long. And so what it amounts to is about 185,000 hectares of land will be available for tree farming on crown land. Um, what they will hope to is that by the end of 
you know, I'm not quite sure, but over the next period of time, they're going to be identifying the parcels specifically of Crown Land where that can happen. We still haven't had that fully identified yet. And again, we're hopeful that the province will be able to keep up to its commitment to, to quickly identify these pieces of land. And I believe they're working towards that. The other part is, as well is that, and this is one of those controversial areas we have to get into, is, is the use of spraying in forestry, whether it's for invasive species, for pests. Um, the Leahy report clearly said that this is safe to use. It needs to be used in a way that's right and responsible and according to regulations, mm -hmm. but it is safe to use. And that is an important point because, you know, as I said, we have to be careful with the selective implementation of Leahy. One of the things that Leahy said is that the government should be funding contractors to spray herbicide on crown land. They're not doing that. So that means the contractor or, you know, that that really upsets the apple cart. That's a cost that gets passed down to forestry operations, which ultimately, as we know about business, when government passes the cost on the business, that cost gets passed on to customers. And I think we can all agree at this point, we don't want to be making lumber any more expensive. Um, and so that, that is a problem. I think that's an example of the dangers of doing this sort of thing piecemeal. Yeah. I, I, I just uh, another question that just occurred to me is, uh, you know, they're making a lot of crown land available for onshore wind turbines. In fact, um, they just announced uh, some in the Colchester area, I believe, which is, I think, one yep. of the biggest forestry areas of the province, right? Yes. So what, yep. what, is there a competition now between the use of uh, for, uh, crown lands for forestry versus wind farms? I really don't believe so. I mean, as we discussed, the percentage of land that we're harvesting at any one point in time mm -hmm. is so low that I really think that there's room for wind companies and forestry companies to get along. In fact, I would go so far as to say the connection between woodlot owners and landowners and these wind companies is a strong one and something we want we want to we want to encourage. You know, when I look at what I need to do, um, you know, I have 95% of my 700 members are small private woodlot owners. I want to make sure that their assets are as valuable as they possibly can be. And so that if means if that means part of what they have to do is, you know, get royalty agreements or funding agreements from these wind farm companies, then that's excellent. But because we only harvest less than 1% of the land every year, we're really not in competition with each other. And I think that's a really important thing for people to realize. And, and I'll be honest with you, we are supportive of the idea of bringing wind into Nova Scotia. We, we think that we need to be exploring all sorts of renewable heat and electricity options here. Bill Leahy, the author of the report, has been critical of the Department of Natural Resources' slow response to the implementation of the report's 45 recommendations. You know, and I'd like to ask you what you consider to be the key recommendations uh, from the report that we haven't talked about and perhaps what the status of those recommendations are in terms of their implementation to date. So, and I, I, I have to be really honest with you, Don, I forget when that Leahy uh, follow-up came out. I believe that was under the previous Liberal government, if I'm right, but mm. I'm not 100% sure. Mm. What I will say is that, you know, the work that we've done with Minister Russian and the Department of Natural Resources and Renewables has been very good relationship. Um, in terms of if things are taking too long, I think what we're seeing is that they're starting to speed up, and that's a good thing. Um, I did have concerns about the initial announcement around sort of the high production forestry piece that we talked about, yep. but in working with the department, they promised to speed that up, and it appears though they're, they're doing what they can to speed that up. Um, one of the other big recommendations from Leahy was to help our contractor base. And so when you tell a contractor that you have to go in and do thinning work, that is very different than doing a traditional harvest. And the type of equipment you need is different for that type of work. You need smaller, more nimble equipment. Um, and so just recently, there was an announcement of the Forestry Trust uh, that showed a, a fund for contractors that will help offset the costs of acquiring this new equipment to do this type of work in matrix zones. And that was a big recommendation at Alehi. Um, I think if I were to say one thing, which is that the one big part of Leahy that we're still not seeing movement on is, is work in and around the workforce. Um, like many rural industries, our workforce is getting older, our workforce is shrinking. Um, and I do think that we need to spend more time and the government needs to spend some more time, as does the Forest Trust need to spend more time looking at uh, what needs to be done to address the workforce. 
But I will be honest with you. I think the best solution to workforce challenges is to get an industry growing. You know, if people see a future in an industry, if they see companies coming in to invest in an industry, that is, in my belief, the singularly most impactful thing we can do to attract people. If all the news stories are about decline, if all the news stories are about struggles, that's not something any young person is going to want to bank their future on. But if suddenly a young person hears that they can work for a sector that's part of the solution to climate change, that's going to be a green job that can help produce heat that's cheaper than oil to combat energy poverty. If it's going to be producing renewable fuels that are cleaner than the fuels we use to drive our vehicles, that is a far more compelling case. And I think it's a far more compelling narrative for people, young people particularly, coming into the workforce today. Uh, just a follow-up question on the forestry trust. Is there an amount of money that's been set aside for that trust? Do you know? It was 50 million. And I'll be really honest with you, I'm not entirely clear on how much of the 50 million remains. Um, okay. We certainly, um, uh, I've been supportive of some of their announcements and not supportive of some of their announcements. And I think that uh, one of my big criticisms of the Forestry Trust right now is that a lot of the money up until this announcement around uh, support for contractors has gone to commercial tech technology that's let's say is very pre-commercial and like very early on technology early phase startup you know that, that that needs a lot of time to develop right not a lot of funny funding has gone into commercial technologies that are already proven even though they exist you know for instance they haven't funded a single project related to district heating and biomass even though it is widely used throughout the rest of the world right we had a bit of money go towards a, a mass timber study which was good news but you know, my math says that less than 1% of all of their funds they've committed to date has gone to proven commercially readily available technology. And, and I also need to be clear, I'm not trying to, you know, poo-poo these, these young, you know, emerging technologies, because when you're trying to transform a sector, you need to go unicorn hunting sometimes, right. but you can't just be looking for unicorns. If something works elsewhere, that can come here, then we need to prioritize that because right now the sector has had many years of struggle and has had years of, of workforce decline. And so in that instance, you need to look for quick wins that have immediate impacts. Yeah. And so there's some work that's working in that regard, but that would be my one criticism of the trust, but I have been very happy to see them roll out the support for uh, for contractors recently. That was an, a, a very important recommendation that came out of Leahy because our equipment isn't cheap. And I don't know if people realize how the, how expensive forestry gear is, but the, you know, the, the piece of equipment that someone's using to go and harvest is easily seven figures. And so if you go into a bank and say, on one hand, my markets for my product are declining mm -hmm. uh, and my costs because of taxes and carbon taxes are going up, I would like you to loan me some money to buy this million dollar piece of equipment. There are not too many banks are going to write that check. Right. So having the government come in, offset some of those costs, offset some of those risks, that will be helpful to that part of the sector. So the other thing that I wanted to just get your opinion on is the issue of clear cutting, which is, you know, it's got a negative uh, public uh, view, obviously. Uh, I wanted to ask you what impact the report has had on clear-cutting practices in the in the province. Well, let's have some fun. Let's talk about the two most controversial things. Let's talk about clear-cutting and spraying. Um, <laughs> because what, what a lot of people don't realize, our industry certainly takes the most heat for clear-cutting and the most heat for spraying. But we use less than 5% of all herbicide in the province. The rest is used by agriculture. It's sprayed on the food we eat. We are not responsible for the majority of clear cuts. Most clear cuts are for residential development and agriculture. And so there's this really inherent hypocrisy is too hard. Maybe we'll go contradiction in, in the opposition to some of these practices we use. If a farmer goes and clear cuts a field to plant one crop that is then turned into food and sprayed with herbicide and treated, people don't create much of a stink out of that. But if our organization goes and clear cuts a place, plants a bunch of trees, even if it's one species of tree that is then grown for lumber, people for some reason take issue with that. And it's it's a contradiction that's really hard, I think, to for me to understand. It might be the visibility of it. It might be the fact that, you know, farming is largely happening on private land. You're not going to go for hikes on. But at the end of the day, clear cutting is a tool that forestry uses, but is dramatically reduced and is only a fraction of all the clear cutting that happens in Nova Scotia. And I think that as we look at it, let's go to the crown land. It's really hard to quantify on private land because it's a, that's a very varied network of, of actors. But on crown land, it's only 10% of crown land that can be tree farmed, right? And so what happens is it's cut, harvested, turned to lumber, planted and those trees are going to grow again. And a growing tree absorbs far more carbon and filters the air more effectively than an overly mature tree. So that's one thing. And I will say as well is that when we talk about clear cutting, 
one of the things that I got into lots of these conversations when I was out in farmers markets as part of our campaign, I would ask people, I say, if you have to harvest a hundred trees and you're using equipment that uses diesel and emits greenhouse gases, because it's not going to be electrified, it's too heavy duty to be electrified. Does it make sense to take a hundred trees over a small portion of land that you don't need to drive far for? Or are you going to take that same hundred trees over a much larger portion of land that you have to drive much farther and emit more to do? In my mind, it makes more sense to minimize your environmental impact by minimizing the fuel that you're burning and emitting. And that's what a clear cut also allows you to do. But there, there are a bunch of reasons that people will clear cut. But what people need to realize is generally in forestry, when you conduct a clear cut, things are going to be planted again. And those trees are going to regrow again, as opposed to a clear cut for farming or for residential development. And so it's dramatically reduced to answer your question as to where it was, but it is going to be something that forestry needs to do uh, as it continues. Uh, and, and I think that we have to kind of wrap our brains around that dynamic and that if we're not clear cutting, it's going to drive up our emissions. Uh, if we're not clear cutting, we're going to have places that are overgrown, have trees that aren't of any value, have trees that are adding to wildfire risk. And so we need to be able to go in in some plots of land and even hit a reset button so that we can then go plant a proper stand and manage that stand uh, in a way that allows for, for forestry operations to continue. And so uh, while it's reduced, it's going to be something that continues. And, and uh, you know, Leahy said that as long as it's implemented in the way and it's managed and it's limited to the areas where it's allowed, it, you know, it's, it's okay to do, much like the herbicide issue. Um, and it's as long as it's done in accordance with the rules and the regulations, then it's okay and it's safe to use. And, and so we'll continue to use these technologies and we'll continue to use these approaches. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're being smart and more careful with how we do so. I always thought that the problem, one of the biggest problems with clear cuts is that they were unsightly <laughs> and uh, people didn't, no, like, well, absolutely. didn't like looking at them. And, you know, uh, I, you know, then the company started to put buffers between at least highways and the clear cuts so you didn't have to look at them. Yep. The second problem is that I think the forest industry hasn't, hasn't properly educated the public that this is, this is like uh, any other harvest. It's, you know, you well, absolutely. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. You know, and, I, I think... and then you grow it and you, and you cut it and you plant a crop and you grow it and you cut it. It just takes 40 years. <laughs> It's a, it's a much longer growth cycle, but it, it, it is, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's some segments of our population who our sector is never going to make happy. And that's something that every sector has to come to terms with. Like there are some people who just don't want forestry to happen either. And that's always a challenge for me. Um, you know, it, people who say don't harvest aren't saying stop building homes with lumber. They're just saying stop harvesting here. We don't want to see it. Right. And to your point, they think it's unsightly. But we need lumber for homes. We need yeah. lumber to replace plastic products and all of these things. So I think it's important from that regard as well. So as previously mentioned, the province has lost two of its three pulp and paper mills with only the Port Hawkesbury paper uh, remaining. Uh, uh, you've talked, referred to uh, some, the impact of that, but can you quantify it a little bit further? What is the impact of those losses on woodlot owners and sawmills? And what have they done to replace um, that market. So it's really hard to do things to replace that market. I mean, I'll be really, be really honest with you. I know we've seen some increased use of biomass at electric generation stations around the province, uh, particularly over what was a really dry summer when hydroelectricity wasn't able to produce as much as it would normally use. Um, but right now, um, I mean, the unfortunate reality is a lot of stuff is just being left in the forest. Um, and that is a, a tremendous risk. Um, you know, sawmills uh, are trying, you know, the, yes, some of the stuff can be turned into pellets. Some of it, some of those pellets can be exported, but even exporting uh, chipped uh, wood is a very serious challenge because of import restrictions throughout the EU and, and throughout the UK. And so even just taking the stuff that exists as it's currently formed and shipping it, you can't just ship that into other countries because they have a series of regulations that are, are very expensive and upset the economics of that. And so it's very hard right now to do much with uh, with the, with this low grade fiber that's left in in the you know following the closure of these mills, which is why it is important um, for our sector to be looking at the tools we have to attract new investment to the province. And I do think, you know, there are there are players in, in this space who are you know kicking kicking the tires on Nova Scotia, and I think that that is the singularly most important thing we can focus on right now. Uh, it will help woodlot owners because it will get them more value, more money uh, for their asset. It will help 
uh, you know, sawmills who are producing lumber uh, because they'll then have a market for their, their, you know, the barks, their chips, the leftover stuff that's there from, from logs. Um, one of the things the mills have done is to sort of implement new technology to make their lumber production even more efficient. Um, you know, and so that involves using AI tools, scanning uh, robotics to really take a look at a log and say, how can we cut this to dramatically reduce the waste? And that's happening. Uh, but really, that only goes so far in that when you have 1.5 million tons of surplus, that's, and that surplus is only going to grow as we're practicing ecological forestry as outlined at Leahy. The only thing we can do is try to attract new entrants into the market in Nova Scotia to produce things, whether it's, you know, renewable fuels, uh, heating our homes with biomass. You, uh, Heat New Glasgow has a project that they're looking at that would be a district heating project. And I believe that over time with the right incentives from government, the right regulatory structure from government with regulatory certainty, which again is honestly, you know, it... One of the things that I, I, I frequently tell people is that we don't need big buckets of money from government. The single most effective thing government can do is give us certainty around supply and access to land and, and make it so that the business environment in Nova Scotia is competitive. Those two things will help solve a lot of challenges for our sector and any sector, really. Um, and, and I think that that's what we need to keep pushing on and keep focusing on as we're trying to attract new entrants into the market that will buy this stuff up. Because until they do, it's going to sit in mill yards, it's going to sit in the forest, it's going to decompose, it's going to emit carbon, it's going to dry out, and it's going to become, you know, fire, forest fire fuel. And no, nobody wants that. Right. I just want to turn back to um, uh, Northern Pulp for a second there in the, in, in the process of uh, negotiating with the provincial government to see what's going to happen there. But there's an indication uh, that the owners of Northern Pulp, uh, paper, a company called Paper Excellence, have indicated an interest in reopening a mill somewhere else in Nova Scotia. I, I, I'd like to know what the position of your association of, the, of those of those potential plans, and and how long would it take actually to implement if they decided to do that? Sure. So. Um... First off, we're entirely supportive of having a pulp mill in Nova Scotia. It is a very important part of, of the forestry supply chain. It is a very important way to drive up value for woodlot owners and for landowners. Um, and it is a very easy way to use up a lot of this low-grade wood that would otherwise be left to decompose and dry out in the forest. So 100% we are supportive of, of any proposal that's going to build, bring a pulp mill uh, to Nova Scotia. And you know, I don't know the ins and outs of all the proposals, but my understanding is, is that it is what they were proposing to, to build and to open is, is really a, a state-of-the-art, a world-class function that people would be looking to Nova Scotia to see as, a, as an example. And I, I think that's something we need to embrace more of, you know, in terms of how long it's going to take. I mean, that, that depends on where it's happening. It depends on how much consultation is going to be needed. It's going to depend on environmental assessment processes. But to get from zero to an up and running pulp mill is not a, an easy thing. But again, we want to see that. We want to see as many markets for this low-grade fiber coming online in Nova Scotia as absolutely possible because that's what's going to produce uh, benefits for the sector is going to produce jobs in rural Nova Scotia. It's going to drive up the value of our members' land. And and those are all things that we need to be encouraging. I, I don't think we look at rural Nova Scotia and think, say, you have too many jobs. Uh, I, I think we need to look at these parts of the province and say, we need opportunities for people who want to live in these areas, to want to raise their families here, and want to be able to make a livable income there. Right. Uh, you already mentioned, you know, the challenge of an aging workforce uh, that are putting pressures on the forest industry to recruit new workers. Uh, frankly, it's right across the, the whole economy, as you know. But, uh, you know, what, a, what is your association doing to deal with the issue of uh, workforce uh, recruitment? So I, first off, I think one of the, there's, I mean, this might sound overly simplistic, but I, I've never been accused of, you know, accused of being a complex person. But I, I think first off, it's answering some of the myths, answering some of these questions about the sector. You know, if every time you turn on the news, there's a negative story, it's much harder to attract people to come and work in your sector. And I think telling the accurate story of forestry is one of those things we can do. Mm. And, and also telling the accurate story of what a career in forestry can look like. Yeah, it could mean you're using a chainsaw. It could use your meaning using a very sophisticated piece of harvesting equipment. It could also mean that you're a seed biologist doing work on DNA sequencing in a lab. It could mean you're getting trained to use AI systems and technologies in mills. It could mean you're an IT person, right? And so 
I think also it's what are we doing to educate and to, to work with people to better understand what life in forestry looks like. And we engage with other forest organizations. There's the Canadian Woodlands Forum, the Forest Sector Council, uh, and we help they, you know, we, we, we help with what we call a teacher tour. We get teachers in the P to 12 system out. They spend days with forestry professionals, visiting woodlots, visiting mills, and learning what forestry actually looks like. And I think that's a big thing of what you do. And so changing the reputation, uh, helping educators understand what forestry is like is also a much longer term play, but a very important one in making sure forestry is present and an accurate view of forestry is present in schools. But again, much like we talked about is that I think that when more investment comes into a sector and people start seeing momentum behind a sector, and they're going to see a sector that's going to promise green jobs and green growth, investment and green growth will attract the next wave of workers in a way that is more efficient and more effective than anything else we can do than any subsidy program would be. Um, and that is why, again, when, when people say, what is your main priority? The main priority is finding investors to come here to set up, to use the low grade, low quality wood that exists. And that is how we're going to get people back into the sector working. It's how we grow the workforce. Uh, and, and it is, I mean, it's as close as you can get to a silver bullet for something. And so education, uh, myth busting and, and market growth, I think, are what you really need to do. And those are the things that we're focused on as a sector organization to help address workforce challenges. Uh, just a couple of final uh, questions. Um, um, I wanted to ask, uh, first of all, um, what are the best opportunities to grow the sector in your view? I mean, there are a lot of different opportunities, and I know you've, you've chatted with Patrick Crabb, uh, who is a, a big proponent of mass timber, and that's certainly one of those things that we see as, you know, a very serious opportunity here in Nova Scotia. Um, I think, again, uh, the opportunity to have a pulp mill back in the province is a, a huge opportunity that we cannot let escape. And I think we also need to look at uh, both the bioeconomy opportunities, and we can get into that a bit more, but also district heating. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, I think, again, one of my biggest disappointments with the Forest Trust is there's been no money spent on exploring, expanding district heating in Nova Scotia. It is a proven technology that's widely used throughout Europe uh, and is proven that when it's used to displace oil, reduces your greenhouse gas emissions from heating your home and uh, reduces the cost. And the other thing that you get into with district heating that I don't think people realize is that it's far less of a challenge uh, than, than adding more capacity to our grid. You know, right now we seem to keep adding capacity to our grid, which requires, I think we can all admit, more upgrades and more investment. The grid is not in the best state that it can or should be. Mm -hmm. And so um, adding more capacity for heat pumps, yes, heat pumps are a great tool, but Expanding district heating would also be able to heat our homes and about two thirds of energy use in Nova Scotia is for heat, not for lights, not for electrification, it's for heat. And so if you're able to take that load off of the grid, it makes life easier and it makes life more economical. Um, in terms of the bioeconomy, I, I think that there's a number of things that we can look at there. Uh, but I, I really think that there are opportunities in and around, um, you know, renewable fuels that uh, a lot of times people can take waste wood, the low grade wood we've talked about, and turn that into a renewable diesel or a sustainable air, you know, air aviation fuel, those types of things. And those are things that can happen in Nova Scotia. And particularly given some of the international challenges around acquiring diesel right now, I think ensuring that there's a reliable domestic supply is something of importance. Um, the other things that we can look at is something uh, called biochar, which is, again, something that can be refined from waste wood. It can be used for agriculture. It helps soil absorb more carbon, uh, helps farms grow more crops, more yield, more efficiently. So these are all different things. It can be even, you know, wood products can be turned into uh, materials to help reduce fossil fuel use in plastics. Uh, and again, I think if we can find more ways to keep... Um, petroleum-based plastics out of the environment, then you reduce the risk to the environment once that plastic has come to the end of its life. And those are all things that, that forestry is able to do, and they're all opportunities for the sector in Nova Scotia. Uh, I just wanted to bring up one other opportunity that came out of the uh, Partners for Progress uh, conference in New Glasgow with the uh, RENs across the province uh, with regard to manufactured homes and modular yes. homes. And uh, we did a live podcast with the Minister for Housing, um, 
uh, Sean Fraser, who also said that we need to find a new way to build homes to, to meet the demand. So you know, there may do. be opportunities. Obviously, the Mass Timber Company is a good example of, of yep. moving in that direction. But there may be other opportunities for people interested in becoming manufacturers of homes, right? Absolutely. And, you know, uh, homes, modular classrooms. Hmm. Um, and what I would say is just to even take that more broadly is I think we need to be looking at building codes and, and, and mm -hmm. the rules that govern how we can construct buildings and start looking and saying, well, we can actually use wood for more than we're doing because of the innovations that have happened. Right. If you're using mass timber, you should be able to build bigger structures using wood than we're currently allowed to. And we've seen federal changes uh, through federal procurement that's going to put some of these wood innovations on the same level where appropriate. Uh, I would really love to see that approach happening here in Nova Scotia more. And again, I think that if we're able to change the rules to encourage that, then that is a very real opportunity for the sector as well. Final question. What's the future of the forestry sector in Nova Scotia, Stephen? I'm tremendously optimistic. I really am. Um, you know, I go around, there are people who are committed to our environment. There are people who are committed to their communities. Uh, we're having more and more tools at our disposal to attract investment. And we have the natural resource and excess of what people need. You know, that is a really great uh, combination uh, to be able to attract investment here that will power green growth and create green jobs from one end of the province to the other. Well, Stephen, I'd really like to thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast and providing uh, such a, a great overview of the forestry uh, industry in Nova Scotia. We look forward to following the growth and development of this important sector into the future. My pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.